0: Last week, I made a mistake. And I began with the song I'm going to play now. It is Telstar by The Ventures because tonight's program is almost entirely about Telstar. We'll explain what it is, the significance of it. But first, let's hear the music which was released originally by The Tornadoes in 1962. Actually, August the seventeenth of that year, it was composed by Joe Meek. Well, we have played that, their version, the Tornadoes' version, quite a few times on the Space Show. So let's go with the Ventures. <laughs> many versions of Telstar, and that particular bouncy one was off the Ventures Space 2001 CD, so there's lots of songs on there, Apollo 11, Columbia, and so on and so on. Right, welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, we mark the demise of Telstar 1, the world's first active communications satellite. Now, that happened 60 years ago yesterday as a result of radiation damage from a United States nuclear bomb test. Now, Telstar 1 was launched in 1962. We mark that anniversary last year on the space show well we're going to have a talk now by Gene Falcar, who lived from 1919 to 1994 at the time of Telstar's launch he was assistant chief engineer at AT AT&T here he is speaking in 1962 before the launch happened so This is Gene Felker.
1: Our distinguished speaker for today was born in Centralia, Illinois. He received a B.S. in electrical engineering from Washington University in St. Louis. He served with the Army Signal Corps during World War II and was discharged as a first lieutenant. He is married and he's the father of two children. He began his telephone career in 1945 when he joined Bell Telephone Laboratories. He was in charge of the group at Bell Telephone Laboratories, which developed TRADIC, the first transistor digital computer. In 1955, he became director of special systems engineering for the laboratories. In 1959, he was appointed transmission engineer for AT&T. In 1960, he became Assistant Chief Engineer. Much of his recent work has been in the development of the Bell Systems Satellite Communications Program. He's a fellow of the Institute of Radio Engineers and a senior member of the American Institute of Electrical Engineers. It's my great, very great pleasure to introduce the Assistant Chief Engineer of the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, Mr. Gene H. Felker.
2: Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'll say a few words while my associate is disappearing here. Uh, I'm very happy to have this chance to come up here and talk to people uh, in the radio and the television business. Uh, As uh, was said in the introduction, uh, you represent an industry that's very important to us telephone business. Uh, I might say that uh, network television is based upon uh, technological wonder. The thing that made uh, network television possible was microwave transmission. Uh, This is what made it possible for us to create broadband channels across the country which the television industry has used for the video network uh, operations. The real significance of satellite communications it comes in the fact that satellites will make it possible to get microwaves across the oceans. And this is uh, the only real and fundamental significance of satellites in communications. Uh, they make it possible to get broadband channels uh, across a uh, difficult terrain or water that you couldn't go across by any other means. Almost all of our long-distance circuits that we build now are served by microwave in this country. There are some 1,600 microwave stations uh, across the country. You've seen these towers several hundred feet in the air, which have big antennas on top of them. Uh, These are the systems that make network television operation. They're the system that uh, give us an economical way of getting voice circuits across the country. We haven't been able to use uh, microwave techniques to go across oceans. The reason we haven't uh, is that microwaves travel in straight lines. And if you shine them out uh, across the earth, the earth curves away. Unless you can get a tower up in about 20 or 30 miles, you can never recapture them. Now a satellite provides the communications people with the opportunity to get a microwave repeater several thousand miles up in the sky where it can pick up this beam of microwave energy, receive it, amplify it, and send it back to a microwave terminal on the other end of the ocean. And I've spent a little time in developing this uh, uh, concept of what a satellite system actually is because I think it's very important for people who are in the communications business or in the radio and the television business or anywhere who are interested in the the many aspects of satellites to understand... uh, what it is and we of course are very interested in having people understand why we in the Bell System are interested in it. Uh, We're interested in it as another way of getting across the oceans. Now, the satellite system gives engineers a wonderful opportunity to use all kinds of techniques that have just come out of the research laboratories. It places demands upon the engineers that are very difficult to meet and our engineers and others have had to create a lot of new techniques that uh, are on a heroic scale. And I'd like to tell you about some of these things. Uh, some of you uh, may have seen uh, out in the hall a model of a Telstar satellite. Uh, this Telstar satellite is about 36 inches in diameter. It weighs about 170 pounds. Uh, it is the closest thing to a living animal uh, that I believe engineers have ever made it's going out into outer space uh, into a very hostile environment where there will be um, damaging radiation where there will be a vacuum and it has to live there off of its environment like any other animal now it will live off the sunlight just as the plants do on this earth it will have solar cells on the surface you may have seen the little blue panels on this satellite there are 3600 solar cells on the satellite take the sunlight that comes down on the satellite, convert it to electrical energy. And this electrical energy is all you have to power the microwave station uh, out in space. So you can't get powers of, say, two or three kilowatts like you're used to talking about in the broadcast industry, because you want this satellite to be light so you can get it up there. Uh, You end up having to build a station that operates on a few watts of power and this power comes continuously from the sunlight. Now, when the satellite is on the other side of the Earth from the side that is illuminated by the sun, uh, it has to operate off of storage batteries, and those storage batteries have been charged uh, by the solar cells. So think of this satellite up going around the Earth. Uh, When it's in the sunlight, the sun is being converted to electrical energy. Electrical energy is running the satellite and charging storage batteries, and when it's on the other side of the Earth... uh, Those storage batteries are operating this microwave station in space. Now let's go a little deeper into the satellite and see what else is in it. Uh, Inside this first satellite, there will be about a thousand transistors. Most of these transistors uh, won't have anything to do with the uh, function of this satellite as a microwave station. Uh, We will regard this first satellite of ours as a kind of Little Bell Labs out in space. These satellites will be involved with the experimental measurement. I mean, these transistors will be involved with the experimental measurement of such things as the radiation in space. So we can get an idea of how serious this problem of radiation will be, so we can measure its intensity. Uh, These transistors will be involved with uh, certain experiments in which we will count the micrometeorites, the dust that is out there in space from meteorites that a satellite like this will intercept. And you will see on the surface of this satellite little special devices uh, which carry out uh, these various experiments. And then the results of all these experiments are sent back to the Earth by means of telemetering. Uh, the actual values detected are uh, converted into numbers and uh, are sent back to the Earth via these telemetering circuits. And much of the complexity that's gone into this satellite has been in that area. Uh, you'd be interested to know there have been uh, around 400 people working on that little satellite you saw out there, Uh, getting it ready for an experimental shot that will take place uh, late this spring. Uh, NASA will launch this satellite uh, with a Thor Delta rocket out into an elliptical orbit. Uh, It will come as close as 500 miles to the Earth, and it will go as far away as 3,000 miles from the Earth. And it will keep going around the Earth in this elliptical orbit, which will gradually precess, uh, it will take it about four, or it'll take this one about uh, three hours, or, or even less than that to go around the Earth. I think it's actually 189 minutes in this case. It's going around the Earth at a, at a tremendous velocity. Uh, people occasionally ask me, uh, "Isn't this something for nothing? A satellite up there going round and round at this great speed of many uh, thousands of miles?" So in a way, it is. Uh, it's not something for nothing, but it's something in nothing. Uh, When you get out several thousand miles, there's literally nothing there to slow you down. It is a vacuum, and once you give this satellite uh, some velocity, uh, it will keep going around. And if you've ever had the experience of swinging a bucket of water uh, around your head when it's attached to a rope, you know the water doesn't fall out. The reason it doesn't fall out is centrifugal motion. Well, a satellite is the same sort of thing. Instead of having a string, you have the force of gravity which uh, is balancing the centrifugal force generated by the velocity of the satellite. And this satellite will keep going around uh, year after year. Now, in this first satellite, we will be required to have an experimental timer in it, which will turn it off uh, after the end of the year or after the experiments have been concluded so that you don't have uh, the signals uh, out there indefinitely. And one of the interesting things to an engineer is this space environment is of such entirely different environment than any other that we've ever worked in that it, it gives you a whole host of, uh, of problems. Uh, all your ordinary materials that we're familiar with on the Earth's surface you have to look at differently in space because in space there is no, uh, there's no atmosphere around them. They're out in a vacuum and strange things can happen to surfaces. And some of these problems are the reason so many people have had to work on satellites. Now this first experimental satellite will be used um, sometime this year to set up uh, telephone calls across the ocean. Uh, it will also be used for television across the ocean, live television. Uh, the French are building a ground station in France uh, uh, to work with this satellite. Uh, the British are building a, uh, a ground station in Britain uh, to work with this satellite. Uh, these same ground stations will be used with uh, a satellite uh, that will be Uh, a project of NASA, a so-called relay project, uh, uh, somewhat later in the year. Uh, These same ground stations will probably be used repeatedly in the years to come as the people doing this work move towards a a commercial uh, communication satellite system. Uh, We believe that by 1965 it will be possible to create a commercial satellite system which will be used in the regular business affairs for telephone communications and for uh, television, for uh, facsimile, for all forms of electrical communication. Now, I've talked some about this satellite in an attempt to give you a picture of, uh, of, uh, of some of the things that are in it and some of the problems that have had to been overcome in designing it. I want to now turn uh, to the ground stations that work with a satellite. Uh, one of the things that makes it possible to build a microwave uh, repeater into something only this big is the fact that you can greatly simplify it if you make your ground stations that work with it uh, complicated enough. And this is the approach in a satellite system. Uh, keep the thing simple, that is, in outer space, or as simple as you can and do your complex things as much as you can on the ground. Uh, create a very large signal on the ground so it can get up to the satellite uh, out in space. Uh, create a, uh, a very sensitive receiver on the ground that will be able to pick up uh, weak signals from space. I have in back of me here an enlarged photograph of an antenna that has been built in the last few months uh, up in Andover, Maine. And to me, this is one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. Uh, It is a remarkable combination of of sheer bulk. The thing weighs uh, over 300 tons, and yet very delicate and precise uh, mechanisms. Uh, It is inside a big inflated balloon. You can see the canvas up here. There's 20 tons of rubberized canvas in this thing. The balloon at its base has a diameter of about 200 feet. Uh, This structure is the horn antenna. You can see a man standing there, which will give you some idea of the size of it. There's another man uh, uh, up on top. Uh, The radio frequency energy comes out of this uh, big open surface at the top. Uh, It has an area of 3,600 square feet. The whole horn turns about this gear, you can see coming down here. This gear uh, uh, weighed 40 tons. Now, you can't build a 40 ton gear in Maine or in New Jersey and roll it up to Maine. Uh, we had to build this uh, inside the radome, uh, take pieces of gearing and weld them together. Uh, the antenna not only turns around this gear, but it also rotates around. Two horizontal tracks that look like railroad track, but they're quite remarkable railroad track. You can see one of them down in here, and another one out there, which is on 180 foot uh, a diameter. Uh, those railroad tracks carry this uh, 300 ton weight as this antenna rotates around. Uh, those tracks have to be accurate to 30 thousandths of an inch, and this has been a, a tremendous construction program. Uh, uh, the it was taken up there in sections. The track was put down. Uh, then the pieces had to be welded together. And then you had to bring in precision grinding machinery uh, to grind down these surfaces and uh, to get them precise. So as this turns around, uh, there will be no vibration, no jar, so that it can track a, a moving satellite uh, with uh, fidelity and accuracy. Now, I have uh, dwelt on this uh, a little bit just to give you an idea of, uh, of how all the, the finest skills that um, engineers and scientists can bring to bear uh, on this problem are required before you can make a satellite system work. The reason you require this, you see, is that this satellite out in space isn't like the microwave repeaters on the Earth that are only 20 miles apart. Uh, it's many thousand miles away from you. Uh, you can't run an AC extension cord to up to power it. It has to live off of these uh, solar cells, so that means it has very little power. And the way you overcome those limitations is by doing a a really tremendous job in the radio transmitter and receiver that is on the ground. Now, uh, what will be the next steps in satellite communications? Well, the, the big step that, of course, we're interested in, everyone will be interested, I believe, is the actual launching of a satellite, this communication satellite next spring. As I mentioned before, this satellite will be launched by NASA. Uh, although it's being launched by NASA, it's being launched at Bell System expense. And the Bell System is reimbursing the government for the cost of this launching. Uh, there's no guarantee that the, the launching will be successful. Uh, as a matter of fact, we have an agreement with NASA to uh, uh, launch a second one uh, if the first one uh, attempt isn't successful. So, uh, although um, We expect that this will be successful. We have to be prepared, as other people who have have had to be, who have gone into space, for a number of attempts. But uh, we think that getting this first one up there, getting back the data that we will get from these telemetered signals, uh, getting the actual demonstration of live television, getting the actual voice circuits across the ocean, will be a, a really major step in moving towards a commercial system. Now, the things that will have to be accomplished as you you move towards a commercial system is that more complicated satellites uh, will go up, satellites in which you try to uh, keep the satellite always pointing uh, its antennas uh, towards the Earth. Uh, This enables you to build a a better transmission path. Uh, There will be uh, satellites put out with bigger rockets. This first satellite, We can only get out to 3,000 miles by putting it into an elliptical orbit. Uh, This is because it will go out with a Thor Delta rocket. Uh, When bigger rockets are available, uh, experiments will be carried out with satellites in circular orbits out at around 6,000 miles. Uh, Then later on, uh, experiments will be carried out with satellites out at 22,000 miles. Uh, One of the reasons that people talk about 22,000 miles, is if you get a satellite out that far, you can get it to rotate around the Earth at the same velocity or at the same speed that the Earth is rotating around its own axis. So it is theoretically possible to have a satellite out there which appears stationary because as the Earth turns, the satellite is also turning. Now, it's a pretty delicate feat to achieve that. Uh, The satellite has to be into the, the plane of the equator, it has to be at the right altitude and it has to be at the right velocity. But these are things that, as, as rocket technology uh, is further developed, uh, will be possible at, at some time or other. And uh, there are a great many different uh, orbits and a great many different configurations uh, of satellites uh, that, uh, that could be used in an actual commercial system. Uh, we feel that the, the step that will be taken this spring will be a, uh, a very important one in, uh, in moving this country uh, forward uh, to where uh, we can uh, uh, create uh, the the, uh, the first really practical uh, business-like use of, uh, of space. And we think this is a very important thing, not only for people in the communications business, but uh, for everyone in the country. and. Uh, we people who have been working on this have been tremendously enthused with the opportunity to, uh, to work on these problems. Now, I would be very happy to uh, discuss any questions that you might want to raise about the uh, different aspects of this.
0: On the space show, our topic is Telstar 1. And uh, this was uh, recorded before the launch in 1962. And we're listening to Gene Falker who was at the time Assistant Chief Engineer of AT&T. And we'll go to that question and answer after these messages. You're listening to
2: 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the bayside
0: where you're listening to The Space Show. We began the program with a version of that very popular song called Telstar, and it's been recorded by many, many artists. It became an international hit, particularly in Europe, where many vocal versions of it were sung. And, yes, you might not realize that uh, there were words to the song And now on the space show, we go to the auditorium of radio station WNYC, where Gene Felker is now ready to take questions from the audience. I
1: have one, Sam. Is there any use for or any attempt to bring the satellite
2: back to Earth after a year up there? Well, it's exceedingly difficult to get it out there. (laughs)
3: <laughs>
2: and it would probably be even more difficult to get it back uh, into, you know, into any usable uh, 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 condition. Actually, what will happen, if you get one out into an elliptical orbit that comes as close to the Earth as 500 miles, it will, as it gets close to the Earth, encounter some little resistance from the, the, the few particles of the atmosphere that are out at 500 miles which will gradually slow it down over a period of years. And you could expect that as it was slowed down, then it would dip even closer to the Earth. And as it runs into much of the atmosphere, it would then begin to, uh, uh, to burn up. And that will undoubtedly be the, uh, the fate of the early satellites that go out into elliptical orbit. Well, right now, I expect very good picture quality. Of, of when it's up there, I, I think that many of us will be delighted if we get uh, the kind of, uh, of, uh, of picture quality that... Uh, one ordinarily gets on a home radio receiver that is, is receiving a commercial program. We're designing this thing to meet the, uh, the full FCC requirements for uh, for a, a television picture. Now, you recognize that in an experiment like this, uh, all kinds of things can happen, and uh, I say I personally would be very pleased if we get a picture that, uh, that just looks uh, good without requiring that it be perfect. But there is no reason whatever why these techniques shouldn't give us a picture of, uh, of just the finest quality that uh, you get now over, uh, over, over television networks. Uh, this first one isn't designed for color television, but there is, again, uh, uh, when you get this far, when you get to where you can do it for black and white, the additional problem of doing it for color is, uh, is, uh, is not tremendous. Now, whether or not commercial satellites will be put up that are good enough for color will depend upon whether or not uh, there's enough business for uh, international color television to make it a sound proposition. But there, there is, uh, I'd like to make clear that, that this is nothing but the same microwave transmission. As a matter of fact, we're going to use the same frequencies that we've used for, uh, for, for television on the land. And there is, uh, there is really no reason why you shouldn't expect and get the, the same quality. Uh, the telemetering is, is very narrow bandwidth. That You encode these signals, and you know, send them out serially, and it'll be done at uh, frequencies like 125 megacycles. So, uh, up, in the, uh, uh, up in the microwave region, in the actual communication region, we expect to have bandwidths of the order of, of, of four megacycles, of base bandwidths, and then of actual radio frequency bandwidths, in order to solve this difficult transmission problem, we will have to swing over a spectrum of around uh, 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 50 megacycles. And this is why people talk about wideband FM. Uh, well, the satellite system won't solve that problem, unfortunately. But the uh, way you would solve that is you would uh, uh, bring the signals in, and then you would have to have a converter that would convert from one set of standards to another. And although this is uh, this this is not a real difficult problem from a technical point of view, although you know it takes a, quite a bit of equipment to do it, but it has been done many times. Uh, the question was, does Mr. Minow have any jurisdiction over this? Well, the FCC, the FCC would be expected uh, to regulate this as they have other uh, communications businesses. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, last summer. Uh, the FCC appointed a special ad hoc committee of international common carriers to study the problems of creating a satellite communication system and to recommend uh, what kind of organization uh, ought to bring uh, such a system into existence and what kind of rules uh, ought to be set up for the conduct of this organization. And uh, That the ad hoc group of carriers uh, met under FCC supervision for uh, a great many meetings throughout last summer. I think the number got up to a hundred. I participated in some of them. I was pleased to see one of my fellow ad hoc committee workers just before the meeting started, Howard Hawkins here tonight. So the FCC is very much uh, in this because the FCC is the uh, the custodian of radio frequencies and also the regulator of, uh, of common carriers. Uh, we haven't uh, developed any information on the rates that would permit you to talk about them very firmly at this time but I can tell you this uh, the reason uh, uh, communications people are interested in this is that not that it, it, you it's a different way of getting across the ocean because it appears to be a better way in the long run of getting across the ocean more economical because you get this greater bandwidth now with submarine cables we can only get sixty. Or so, maybe 100 voice circuits across the ocean in the next year or two. We'll put on a new cable that will give us 100 uh, before long. Uh, that may be extended up, but we believe that satellite systems will probably be a more economical way uh, of getting across the ocean than, uh, than, uh, than cables. And when you have enough traffic to fully utilize their bandwidth, uh, then I would think they would give you a basis for, for cheaper rates than the, uh, than the kind of systems you have today. But you would, it would take a number of years to build up the traffic to where you had the business uh, to support such a system. And uh, our experience with this and the satellite itself and, and, and other things uh, are, have convinced us that this isn't something where anybody is going to move in and, and make a lot of dollars. Uh, that is going to be, you know, a golden business opportunity because this is a, is a, is a thing which you, you have to make big investments uh, with many risks in them. Uh, once you have, a, have it there, you then have a tremendous capacity for circuits. As your traffic builds up to where you require all those circuits, then your unit costs uh, come down. And that's a, a thumbnail picture, at least, of, of, the, uh, of the rate picture, uh, or the, or the uh, investment in rate picture with respect to satellites. Well, nature uh, helps you uh, a great deal there. Space is an awfully lonesome place. And, and think, of, think of, the, of, the, uh, of the geometry of this thing. This thing is out there. Uh, 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 this one, uh, this first one we're talking about, will be out several thousand miles from the Earth. After all, it's only this big... Uh, uh, I'd tell you this, I'd hate, to, as an engineer, to be assigned the job of sending one up to hit another one. <laughs> the question was, during what percentage of a 24-hour day will transmission be possible between America and Europe? Well, in this first test, where you only have one satellite up and it's going around rather rapidly in this hour and a half period in the elliptical orbits, uh, you will only be able to get transmission between Europe and the United States uh, during the interval of a pass, when the satellite can be visible in Europe and also visible in the United States. And this means that your, these first experiments will be conducted for periods of 15 to 30 minutes. Now, to create a commercial system, you would put your satellites out further so they go more slowly, so they're visible for a longer period of time, and you'd also put more of them up. About 20 satellites in 6,000-mile circular orbits going or uh, crossing the poles would give you a, an excellent grade of, of service across the ocean to where there would only be a few minutes a day in, in which there wouldn't be a, a, a satellite available. Now, of course, if you go out and solve the problem of putting one at the 22,000 miles, uh, as long as you can keep it from walking away from you, it'll be there all the time. And we have no reservation regardless of the kind of system of creating about the possibility of creating a system that's available all the time.
1: What about jamming?
2: Well, like any radio system, uh, this system can be jammed. But uh, unlike most radio systems, this one can't be jammed accidentally. If you wanted to jam this one, you'd have to build something like that. Uh, You'd not only have to to build something like that, you'd have to... uh, 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 put even more power into it, uh, you know, if you really want to override things. Uh, I don't believe that uh, that the the problem of jamming uh, will be serious. Uh, International communications have been carried on uh, ever since uh, uh, 1928 uh, uh, across oceans via uh, a low-frequency and later high-frequency radio, and those are channels, you know, that are relatively easy to jam. Uh, They haven't been jammed because communications is a two-way street. if, if, and everybody has to have somebody else to communicate with. So anybody who, who doesn't behave himself in the matter of the allocation of frequency or so on uh, uh, is isolated from the rest of the world. And, uh, jamming and, and, and international misbehavior has not been a problem. We have agreements with over 150 different uh, administrations around the world. And, uh, and many of these people in the United Nations we don't get along with them sometimes at least from what you read in the papers that when it comes to communications that you have communications today between these countries and people live up to their uh, to their rules and obligations because after all they all have to have access to the rest of the world and this is what's made it possible to to have uh, electrical communications Uh, satellites won't be any different all of these other things have required that people behave in 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 a reasonable fashion in order to have communications and they have
1: Thank you again, Mr. Felker.
0: Yes, thank you. Uh, That was Gene Felker, who at the time, 1962, was Assistant Chief Engineer of AT&T. And that satellite was successfully launched. It operated for quite some time until the mission ended in 1963, February the 21st. Yes, 60 years ago yesterday. Why did it end? Well, it was the result of the Starfish Prime nuclear test, which the United States exploded at an altitude of 400 kilometers. And the radiation from that test cooked the satellite. <laughs> so the mission uh, had to end. We have more about Telstar coming up shortly. You listen to The Space Show and... It's presented by members of the Space Association of Australia, which is a non-profit and non-political group of space enthusiasts. And uh, we like sharing with people like yourself what's happening in space and what has happened in space. Now, in addition to presenting this radio program, we also hold public meetings. They're held on the 4th Monday of each month, except December. And we hold them in the Golden Gate Hotel, which is at 238 Clarendon Street. Now, if my (laughs) recollection is correct, uh, the fourth Monday will be, he says, looking up his diary real quick, uh, it should be this coming Monday. We meet from 7 o'clock, upstairs in the Coventry Room, of the Golden Gate Hotel. Now the Golden Gate Hotel is at 238 Clarendon Street, the corner of Clarendon Street and Coventry Street. And the meetings are free, but you are able to purchase meals and drinks downstairs at uh, the usual pub prices. So please come along, Monday. It's coming Monday. Meeting starts officially at 7pm. Meals available from 6pm downstairs. So uh, please come along. We're welcome to have you there. In that talk, we heard about how the low-Earth orbit satellites were going to be difficult to operate because they need to be tracked across the sky. So it wasn't long before... Telecommunication satellites move to geostationary orbit, that is, they hover in one place and you only need three of them to cover pretty much the whole Earth. And for decades, that was the name of the game. The low Earth orbit satellites were not used for communications relays. But modern electronics has made a change to that, and companies like OneWeb in the United Kingdom. And Starlink in the United States are launching hundreds, or in the case of Starlink, thousands of satellites into low Earth orbit, which allows uh, communications with, uh, you know, from satellite to satellite and uh, from the ground to the satellite quite quickly. You may have read, heard about the Starlink satellites being used in the Ukraine with the terminals there. Well, a tropical cyclone swept across the North Island of New Zealand uh, a few days ago. And one of the hardest areas what hit was in the Hawke's Bay area. Towns of Napier, and in particular Wairoa. And the telecommunications there were completely wiped out. Well, guess who came to the rescue? Yes, Starlink. This report from News Hub.
3: A few people from the outside world finally made it into Wairoa today, including our reporter Alexa Cook. What they found was a town that was caked in silt with people queuing for food. But there is hope of more contact with the outside world thanks to a satellite link. Cut off by road and phone, its residents are desperate to contact their loved ones. After three days of no communications, people are struggling to hold it together.
0: We are working on establishing communications to water urgently. People are struggling, but you, you can't get hold of them at the moment because all our communications are down. Don't stress that because you can't get hold of them means there's something wrong.
3: But some hope there is news of a small reprieve for the cut-off town. A Starlink satellite has just been connected, so locals should soon be able to let their loved ones on the outside know they're OK.
0: That report from NewsHub in New, in New Zealand. Because of the trajectory of the tropical cyclone passing very close to the Rocket Lab launch pad at the Mahia Peninsula on the east coast of the North Island. Well, a message from Starlink tells me that there have been no damage to their pad, launch pad and there has been uh, no injuries for their staff, and the helicopter that they have to try and catch the electron rockets as they fall back to Earth has been pressed into service by taking relief supplies, food and things like that to some of the stranded people. So um, that's what's happening with Rocket Lab. And they do also report that they have another rocket on the way from Auckland to the Mahe Peninsula to be launched quite soon. So this has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie. You can find us at Space. Dot .asn.au So that's to find the Space Association of Australia, space.asn.au